This Podcast Movement 2022 audio session is brought to you by Supporting Cast, the best way to sell and deliver exclusive podcasts. And special thanks to PM22 Virtual Ticket Presenting Sponsor, Amazon Music. All right. My name is Lizzie Breyer Bowman. I'm the VP of Growth and Marketing at Lemonada Media. And I am here today with some of my amazing colleagues from Lemonada. I know this sounds like a heavy session, especially right after lunch, to talk about mental health content, but I know that we're gonna have we're gonna have fun. We always have fun at Lemonada. So I will let these lovely ladies and lovely gentlemen introduce themselves and then we'll jump right in. Hello. <laughs> That's just very loud. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I'm Stephanie Whittleswax. I am the co-founder and chief creative officer of Lemonada Media. What that means is I make all of our podcasts. And by I, I mean I have an amazing team that makes all of our podcasts. This is my partner. She is Jess. Go. Hi, I'm Jess Cordova-Kramer. I'm the um, co-founder and CEO of Lemonada. Uh, yeah. My name is Zach Williams. I am the co-founder and CEO of Prepare Your Mind, which is a nutritional, uh, f a nutrition for mental well-being company. I'm a mental health advocate and I'm a special correspondent and co-producer of Call for Help, which is a recent series that launched August 16th, focused on 988, the challenges, the benefits, and everything in between. Steph. Can you tell us a little bit about how Lemonada came to be and why we are having this discussion about mental health? I'd love to. Um, it is a very sad story. It is quite a bummer. Um, we say the saddest meet cute in the whole world. Um, so I, in 2015, sadly lost my brother, Harris Whittles, to a heroin overdose. And uh, that annihilated me and my family, obviously, as something like that would. And I was sitting there going like, how did this happen? I did everything they told me to do. I loved him so hard. Why, why, why did this happen? Kind of left with this giant shrug that people are left with in the wake of something like that. A Couple years later, this woman was thousands of miles away. I was living in Texas at the time. She was in Minneapolis. Lost her brother the same way was looking for the same kinds of answers. And a few months later, tuned in to an episode of Terrible Thanks for Asking, hosted by Nora McInerney. I was on with my mom, and she says that she smiled and laughed, because we talk about sad things, but we do it with jokes. That's part of the secret sauce. Um, and then she felt hope of like, hey, this woman got to the other side. She's making jokes with her mom. I won't feel this crippling grief always. This will, this will pass at some point. Um, and then stalked me and <laughs> found me, tracked me down. Uh, she was the executive producer of Pod Save the People at the time with DeRay. And I loved that show. And so I said, yes, we'll get on the phone. We talked for an hour, which is wild because I was a week away from giving birth to my second child and very tired and full and <laughs> full of baby and ready to be done. And at the very end of the call, Jess planted a seed. She said, um, I have an idea. I want to do a podcast about the opioids crisis. Are you interested in that? It was a hard no for me. <laughs> it's like, nope, I'm done with heroin. Uh, it has really ruined everything. And I don't want to talk about it anymore. I don't want to think about it anymore. I don't want to, you know, you seem great. Let's stay in touch. 
but the seed was planted and I kept thinking about the idea and how much something like this was needed for families like mine. A couple months later, I was scrolling Twitter and saw opioids are killing more people than car accidents. Picked up my phone, I think I said like, the world is terrible, <laughs> let's make this thing, I'm in. And we got to work. And that's basically, that show became Last Day and that germ of the idea about making this really hard thing easier for people, uh, making life suck less, became the germ of the idea for Lemonada. Um, and we have 26 podcasts now, we'll be 31 at the end of the year, 60 staff, a whole thing. That's the origin. Is my mic on? Yes. Yeah. I think I did the same thing to you on our first call. We had a nice conversation about mental health and advocacy and bonding over sharing our experiences. And I was like, hey, would you ever do a, during a 988 podcast, would you ever be interested in that? So I, 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 I that She's happened very twice. good at wearing people down. Like a true gift. Zach was in. Zach was yeah, in. Yeah, well, that was an easy well, yes I mean, well, I good. to wear him down. Good. You, you, well, you get different tactics for different people, you know? <laughs> So, Steph, you just mentioned this idea that you wanted to make life suck less with Lemonada. Like, that was part of the idea. Jess has a lovely shirt on right now that says this. Seems to be something important. Jess, do you want to talk a little bit about what that means to you and how we kind of bring that to life at Lemonada? Like, why does that matter? Yeah, I mean, our, our theory about people is that we are all waking up every day and doing our dang best. Like we are all trying real hard and it is hard to be a human right now. It probably always has been, um, but we only know the moment we're in and it's challenging. And when Steph and I, we didn't just, we weren't like, oh, let's make this podcast, let's launch a network. It was a little bit longer than that. We were like, let's make this podcast, let's pitch it out. So who here has pitched a show and then been told it's too niche? We were getting that over and over again. And we were like, you know, like our story about our brothers not niche at all, unfortunately. At the time, there were, um, this was 2019, 20 million people affected by opioids overdoses in one year alone, and that does not even touch on the people who are living with active substance use disorder related just to opioids in their lives, like in their core family. So we estimated about 200 million people could be potential audience members. And we were like, we get it, so let's just do it ourselves. Um, and um, that is one, you know, one way in which we're addressing challenges, big, huge health issues, mental health issues. But there's other stuff too. There's like, I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about this, that, and the other. Um, and so we thought, let's make a podcast network that helps people get out of bed in the morning and helps them feel less alone. Um, and who doesn't want to make life suck less? Like, who doesn't want to be a part of that as a staff member, as a host, as a as a partner, as 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 anything? Um, so that's our, that's our ethos. Our core values on staff are um, mission-driven, and the mission is make life suck less, honest and empathetic. Uh, and so we're just trying to be nice and produce content that makes you feel better and gives you something hopeful to hang on to. And solutions, too. There's a lot of, of things that feel impossible, you know, these intractable problems we're surrounded by. And it's like, well, we have to still function. We have to still serve our children breakfast, you know, if that's your thing, breakfast or children, um, you know, so it's important, it's important for us to work those things out. I have a niche podcast pitch for you. Great. Let's do it. Mental health for pets. <laughs> My daughter pitched a show called Good Pets. She did a pilot, so you and she should get together. I would, I'll do it with your daughter. We'll, we'll do great. a show. Um, 
Yeah. So it was an easy yes for you, Zach, when, when Jess called you. Tell me why, like, tell me why this was a project that you felt was important to do. Sure, yeah. Well, you know, a little bit about my story. My father was the entertainer Robin Williams, died by suicide after he passed away. I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and generalized anxiety disorder. Was not having a great time of it. And uh, discovered service as my path to healing. Uh, that's how I became a mental health advocate. Uh, started actually teaching financial literacy at San Quentin Prison as a volunteer, but that actually evolved into focusing more on mental health organizations, primarily for, for younger people, uh, high schoolers and college students. Um, but through that experience, I actually started evolving my approach, and I, I do what I call systems-based advocacy, which is educating people around why mental health is, why the state of mental health is the state of mental health, and the issues around parity, access, equity of care. Uh, and um, as part of that, I am seeking all sorts of solutions to expand people's awareness of programming, campaigns, research, advocacy, policy. This was such a natural fit for me because you actually delve into how the policy sausage is made. And uh, it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, the more I learn about how the public, <clears throat> pardon me, the more I learn about how the public sector addresses issues relating to mental health, the more I realize that there's so much work to do. The system is so broken. And we, as a, as a collection of communities, as a population, as individuals, really need to advocate collectively for change. Otherwise, it won't happen. I'm going to mention one stat that's worth knowing. Um, please feel free to share it. I, I give you full license to do so. Um, in the US, medical GDP expenditure, which is in the trillions, I believe at this point it's about two, more than two trillion, um, medical GD GDP expenditure for mental health is two and a half percent of total medical GDP expenditure. We need to be at around 15%. So, you know, we're way off. To give you an example of countries that are doing it better, Australia is about 7%. New Zealand is, I believe, around 9% now. And so, you know, we're creeping forward, but the US is way, way off the mark in terms of where we can be. Okay, handing it off. So Steph, you hosted Call for Help, and Zach is the correspondent. You, you had a career, and then now you have become what Jess calls the queen of misery. Yeah. Like, this is, this is where you are in your life. Thank you. Yes. And what have you learned from hosting shows like Last Day and Call for Help? Like, what have you learned that has helped you communicate with people about these really tough bummer yeah. issues. Yeah, I'm great at parties, <laughs> truly. I'm like, do you want to listen to my show? It's about death and dying and awful things. And they're like, no, I'm good. But I make a lot of jokes. So I think that's part of it, right? Like, we realized really early on, we have to do a couple things if we're going to talk about this stuff. We need to obviously talk to experts. We need to obviously have that kind of data that Zach just provided us with. We need all of that. We need to balance that with human stories, with first-person storytelling everyday people, like what, what is the human impact 
behind those stats and behind those headlines. Um, and so when we started last day, there was tons of reporting on opioids, tons of it, really good reporting. But there wasn't that kind of deep dive into the, the human toll that, that was told over 26 episodes and that really focused on solutions. So we use a lot of humor. I say lots of bad words. I, I'm tr I don't do that on Call for Help, actually. I think I don't. I think I'm being better on, on Call for Help, being <laughs> more of an adult. Um, but yeah, we, we try to make our podcast entertaining. We focus on human stories. The human stories are the sort of zoom in. And then we take that as a springboard to zoom out and look at these systemic issues, to look at what Zach. So like Zach just gave us that great stat. We would go find a story that exemplifies that and use that. And then, and then just we have incredible producers and engineers and storytellers who um, we work so collaboratively and closely to tell a really good story. That's at the end of the day, like this is art. This is you want to you want to listen to it um and so that's really important to us we're really meticulous about that um and and then i think just like doing it with empathy is really important so um even when we're talking about you know we went we did guns this season on last day and it was really tough and we were very clear that we needed to go two communities where guns were really embraced, where it was part of the culture, and that I wouldn't be able to really tell that story unless I understood why somebody would live that way, right? And so trying to really connect with people, Jess always says, you know, heroin, mental health issues, they don't care who you voted for. That's not, we're all sort of struggling with these same things, so we try to really get into that and make it from the heart. And find a massive audience. Like Last last Day is a top show. It was the number one society and culture show by episode five or six of the season, which is hard to dominate. Um, we've had millions and millions and millions of downloads. So we're, and, and Lizzie runs our marketing team. So it's a combination of like, make the art great, um, tell a story people actually can listen to. Um, first, first episode of Last Day has Aziz Ansari and Sarah Silverman on it. So you're like, you're in. You're like in the story with us. And then we're talking about my brother's last day. We do this deep dive um, of Stefano's last day from the moment he woke up to the moment he ended up in the morgue. We went with a production team. It's sort of like The Wire. Um, so you are, you're asked to, to come on this journey with us. Um, and then this lady hosts it and, and helps you laugh along the way. Um, we use the same, same idea for Call for Help. So you're finding these stories to tell, but all three of you have also been really public about telling your own stories, like both the stories of the struggles you've had and these people in your life that you've lost. How does it feel to be vulnerable like that, like to tell your story and put it out there in public and just see how people are gonna react to it? And these like stories that you have to tell over and over about the worst day of your life. Well, we were talking last night around telling the same story again and again but it's really not the same story. It's contextualized in different situations. And um, for me, it was healing. And I didn't set out, telling my, set out to tell my story to be healed. But it turned out that that's ultimately the process that was catalyzed through it. Um, the thing, too, and this is one of the things I advocate for, is that there's strength and resilience in being vulnerable. Um, especially if you come from a place where you can build up a stoic, solid foundation. And as a skill, um, it becomes 
a superpower if, if applied correctly. And so I learned this over time and started building the muscle of getting comfortable sharing my story in all sorts of different contexts from, you know, Harvard Business School to a group of 15-year-olds to, you know, a group of psychiatrists. It's, it's, it's really ultimately something that I've learned to take great joy in. Um, and, you know, the thing is, is that often people might misconstrue, hey, that means I just share, share everything I'm going through to anyone who, who to, to everybody. And, you know, there, there are situations where contextually it's safe and you're able to do so, and there are situations where it might not be fully appropriate. And, and the thing for me is that permissibility is increasingly growing over time, and that's very exciting. It involves stigma reduction and all sorts of things relating to how people perceive biases relating to mental health and openness, and, um, but, but that involves taking a position of courage and continuing to be out there and open and ideally finding the opportunities for people to really grok what it means to find that strength and openness. That was great. <laughs> I, I love it too. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. Um, I don't always love it. I'm going to be honest. I don't always love it. It's, it feels um, I have to um, be really... Like, I don't, I don't know how else to be but vulnerable. I've always been that way. I was born that way. She always says, it's like, you know, my heart is just plastered on my sleeve. And, and I bring that energy into uh, any space, you know. And um, often what happens is, like Zach said, you, when you put that out, you receive that back. And then there's this kind of, like, give and take and... That's been what's so amazing about the sharing of the story is that people are like, hey, that happened to me and that really sucked and nobody else talked about that. Thank you for talking about that. Let me tell you my story. And then there's this exchange where you feel like, you know, seen and heard. I mean, I, I remember very distinctly after my brother died and I hadn't thought about this in so long. I had written an essay that I put out and I was so raw at the time and I didn't want to talk to anyone that I knew in my real life. I didn't, I couldn't make words or sentences, but I had a lot of feelings and I put that out. And the people that gave me the most strength after that were people who I didn't know, who were responding and saying, that happened to me, here's where I am. You know, and I was like, oh, I'm not the first person that's ever lived through this kind of pain. It feels that way, but it's not, it's not. So I think that's what keeps me going through it when I hit a wall and I'm like, I don't really want to tell this story anymore. It's a really painful story and it doesn't feel good. Um, knowing that it's healing and that hearing other people share their stories was so healing for me helps. Yeah. I would just add, I'm, I'm not a particularly vulnerable person in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> Um, love a wall, love to build it thick. Make a great partner. Love to, make yeah. great partners. Yeah, very <laughs> thick skin and very, and, but you know, um, this rocked me and, uh, in a way that I was like just a different, you know, totally different person than when my brother was still alive. And um, my, you both had very public, um, you public father, public brother. My brother was just a regular awesome dude. Um, so it was a very, very easy for um, us to have just mourned privately and not brought 
my parents onto this podcast and my brother's wife onto this podcast. And we like put it all out there and it was really powerful. Now, when I'm raising money for Lemonada and I'm telling the story over and over again, that is draining. Um, so that, that becomes kind of challenging. And um, I do think um, on the flip side, I'm, I'm having conversations with like bankers and they're like, yeah, that happened to me too. That happened to me too. That happened to me too. And there's just so much power in that community and that connection and then not feeling alone. And that is our like mission and, and theory of change at Lemonada is that the, you know, people just want to feel connected, seen and heard. I, I want to have a quick addendum to this. Um, it's important to, as a skill to develop healthy boundaries because, as, you know, in my situation, often, especially when it comes to speaking to the media and they're like, they're like, so what was it like being the son of Robin Williams? What was he doing? What were his final days like? Like, did it hurt you to see him struggle? And I, there are ways in which I can speak about that, but some things are just for discussing with family. And I had to learn to be okay in setting up healthy boundaries. And I, I really advocate for people who want to take a vulnerable position in sharing their story and they're like, figure out where your boundaries are and be strong in developing those boundaries. My favorite things in getting to know you guys, like I listened to last day and then I met you and I felt weird. Like, oh my God, I know so much about your lives and these like deep emotional things you've been through. But Steph, like I love it when you just like tell funny stories about Harris. Like it's just, it seems like you have gotten to a place where it's easier to talk about that and integrate like all of the good and all of the bad and all of the things. And that's so true. I mean, it does, am I? Her. Okay, it does. It does change. It does. Like now, I, I, when I talk about him, I talk about, yeah, things that aren't related to his death and his addiction. I mean, that was a little sliver of of him, and then there was like this whole life that was so incredible. So, yeah, and it's not, you know, it's it's me too talking about my own mental health struggles, and you know, I think that's just really important to, you know, if you have that platform to be honest about, yeah. Well, that's and we have to take care of our, our guests, our talent that's coming totally. through the network as well. Like, um, we have people come, Lemonade is a special virtual place, and people come and they tell us things that they have never told anyone ever. We had, um, at the end of season one, um, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers came on and talked about his brother having passed away from an overdose like 20 years earlier, like really early um, in his life. And he had never talked about it publicly, talked about his own sobriety publicly for the first time. It's like a place where people come, but there's you know a certain level of deep care you have to give to people when they're coming um, on your show to talk about mental health and substance use disorder, anything in that spirit, because you don't know where they're at in their journey talking about it. They might, it might be the 50th time they've come on to talk about it. They might be a mega celebrity. They might be um, someone who's never spoken publicly um, about the death of their child or something that they're struggling with. So we're, we're always taking a lot of care of our um, people coming through. We've been talking a lot about like the content and how do we tell these stories. One of the things that's interesting about Lemonada is it's a mission-driven for-profit company. Like it's not a nonprofit. It, we have to run like a business. How do you kind of reconcile the mission and the business and like 
what does success look like for you, Jess, when you're thinking about those two very different ways of measuring success? I can start, but you guys have this too at PIM, and then you have to keep the heart alive of this company. Um, yeah, I mean, we have two KPIs, and it's audience and revenue. And we think about um, the audience as the people we're trying to help and and create this platform for. So the more the merrier, truly, um, across the planet. That is our goal, to be a household name and to, to really um, reach as many people as possible. Um, incredibly diverse content um, and incredibly tailored to the human condition. We have everything from, we've been talking about last day and call for help, but we have a show called Good Sex that's wildly popular. We've got a series with Ricky Lake and Kaylin Allen coming out that's a look back on the 90s. We've got Elise Myers coming out later this fall. Um, talks deeply about ADHD, anxiety, and other issues. She's a popular TikToker. We've got an incredible true crime series coming out. Um, in two weeks um, with KSL podcasts. And it, we don't do true crime in the traditional way. We do true crime about survival and forgiveness um, where the woman doesn't die or where there's a, a broader story there. So um, we are trying to appeal to mass audiences with content about the human condition. So audience first, revenue is the fuel. Um, that allows us to have a staff of 60 full-time people. We do everything in-house at Lemonada from content creation to monetization, distribution, and marketing. Um, and um, to have a staff that's 80% women and 40% people of color um, where everyone has stock options in the company. And like we, we think about the, the for-profit piece is how we can do this work at scale. Um, and the mission is there, really there. So it's a d double bottom line. Double bottom line is a phrase I would never say, which is why we are partners. <laughs> like, I love that she can just flex that. Double bottom line, yeah, that sounds so good. But that's why you synergize, right? Yeah, <laughs> synergize. <Totally. laughs> cool, well, we can circle back on that later. <laughs> wow, um, you guys are good at business. Really good <laughs> business. at business. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have a mission-driven company. Here, here's the advantage of having a mission-driven company is that, and I, I really, strongly, strongly am for more mission-driven for-profit companies because it's about changing culture. It's not just, hey, you have a mission, Let's, that means form a not-for-profit or something like that. It's like, no, you can actually develop opportunities to generate value and have investors and stakeholders going beyond just donors. Um, here's the cool thing about it is that younger people, generally, I'm a geriatric millennial, I love that term, um, gener geriatric millennials and younger um, respond more to missions, uh, more so than companies without missions. They buy products, they engage with services that are more mission-driven. Um, so there's actually like a strategic advantage to it. On top of that, we recruit. We can. We have the the good fortune of being able to recruit the best people in the industry who are passionate about mental health. In, in my industry, which is consumer goods um, and consumer health, um, because they, they care about what we're doing. And we can, you know, get people engaged on a deeper level who are productive and wake up excited about what we're doing. And I just feel that every company that's formed, if, the, if they're not establishing a mission from the onset is at a disadvantage. So I just feel that this needs to be the new status quo. And you know, the advantage from our end is immense. And it, you know, people feel good consuming our product because they 
They know that we're donating to mental health organizations. They know that everyone on our team, well, we don't share that everyone on our team is passionate about it, but I could name the, the connection to mental health Store, you know, connection to mental health or the relationship with mental health with every team member. And so it's a very, it's a very, very cause-based organization that we've developed. And it makes time spent together awesome. And that's another advantage from it. So it's just like, there's, there's no downside to it. Um, there's literally no downside to it from my end. So, you know, it would be a no-brainer do it moving forward. So Lemonade is not a nonprofit, but we do work with a lot of nonprofits. So Jess, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, like Call for Help being a great example. We had some great nonprofit partners who helped make that show happen. Can you talk a little bit about what that relationship looked like for a show like Call for Help? Yeah, I can do a quick, quick one, and then Steph really ends up working with them most closely. But when we're when we're entering a space that is not known to us, we're not experts on most things. Um, we want to do content that is absolutely responsible. So we know call for uh, you know call, call for help is like number three in the health and wellness charts this week. It was like top fifty. We know a lot of people are going to be listening to it. It better be right. It better be right. Nine eight eight is the number you call in most places now if there's a mental health emergency instead of nine one one. We can't put out garbage. So uh, we do a few things. We um, we get support from nonprofits and foundations when we're going into this sort of cause space, um, and then we bring them along for the ride so that we are working with trusted um, folks in whatever the ecosystem is uh, to make sure that we're telling responsible stories um, and giving good advice and solutions. We're never ending our series with like, well, hope it works out. Um, there's always a very clear, here's who's done it well in the community, um, and here's how we can scale this kind of aspect to all of our shows. Uh, but once we kind of get the right people around the literal table, they get passed off to our production team and? Yeah, we work with our <clears throat> sponsors as editorial partners, which sounds unconventional, but like Jess said, um, Jed Foundation is expert in the space. When, we, when it comes to suicide prevention and, uh, and, and knowing all of that, NAMI we're working with right now, um, National Alliance on Mental Illness, the Just Trust. So, Instead of me going or a producer going to Google a statistic, we can email our partner and say, hey, what's the, what's the scoop on this? Can you connect us to a person that has lived experience here? Um, we work closely with the Trevor Project on season two of Last Day. We, you know, we work with organizations who have been pounding the pavement doing this work for a lot longer than we have, and then we use our skills as storytellers to um, make all of the stuff they've been working on entertaining. Um, we have regular editorial board meetings where we say, okay, here's our outline for the series. Um, any notes on that? Any feedback? Here's our first draft, uh, you know, the content edit. Are we getting anything wrong? And then, of course, we work with a fact checker to make sure that, you know, everything is locked solid. Because like Jess said, this is, we actually do life and de death stuff at Limonada. And um, I think this is a question on your list, but I'll never forget, like, last Christmas, I got a tweet from somebody that said, I was feeling suicidal and I listened to last day and I'm still here. And I was like, what? I have a theater degree, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's just amazing. That, that's a huge responsibility. Um, I talked to somebody last night who was telling me one of their relatives has a son who's struggling with substance use disorder 
and they recommended to their relative that they listen to the show to learn about harm reduction, to learn about meeting him where he is instead of mandating recovery. Um, and they're repairing their relationship because of what the mom learned on the show. So that's the stuff that, that's really meaningful to us. That's like the bread and butter of what we do and, and we gotta get that right. So we love working with partners who know more than we do. And Zach, your role on Call for Help is kind of the solutions guy. Like you come in in the end of episodes and you tell people what they can do to make a difference or take action. What are some of the things you, that you really took away from making the series? So you learned a lot about 988 and what's going on right now. What, do you, what are you most hoping people will do to help make the mental health system in America better right now? A big question, I know. <laughs> um, well, there are two questions. The first was, what do you hope to take, I just want to make sure, the yeah. takeaway from, from 988. Um, I hope that people will understand what it's about, specifically that it's meant to provide more contextual care. The prior precedent was kind of twofold. It was either dialing 911, which would orient around a emergency, generally a law enforcement oriented response for mental health. That works well with optimal outcomes in a very low percentage of the situations. So there's 911 was the prior precedent and then also the suicide lifeline, which had a very specific context. It's a, it, was, it's, it's, it is a very good pro, program, but it had a very specific situational use case, and the, the goal was to expand it. So, you know, in segueing into 988, the situation is providing a contextual care model in which you can call the service, get connected with someone with context. If you're a veteran, the goal is to connect you with someone with lived experience, either being a veteran or having a situational training relating to working with veterans. Also, a, now there's no geotagging. People don't know where you are when you call 988, but there, you are in a regional area. You're fielded by someone who is in the community. And with, the direct res, with, with, that, with that situation in, in place, you can just get a better outcome. The, the great thing too is that it's not oriented around enforcement. The goal is not to elicit a law enforcement response. The law enforcement situation when it comes to dialing 988 involves someone actually saying, I'm going to transfer you to 911. Is that okay? And that's a very different situation from dialing 911, which, in which it immediate, immediately goes from zero to 11. And there's a gradient when it comes to dealing with mental health situations. And, and you know, within the, um, within the podcast, there is a visit to a really well-run community uh, support center called Solari. And as part of that, you really start to understand what it looks like to have a contextual care model. Mind you, the resourcing for it from SAMHSA's and the public sector is only $300 million, which is less than $1 per, per American, if you're talking about under-resourcing. But um, 
that goes a long way. You know, it's, it leads to, to at this point, uh, in most sectors, fielding is over 90%. Prior to that, um, it was in the 70%. In some sectors, in some regions, it was in the 20s. So it creates an expansive overhaul of how context is applied in the case of mental health. The second question, and I'll be a little bit more brief around it, was, remind me again? What is the most important thing that could happen to transform the mental health system right we, now? Okay, yeah, we need to get medical GDP expenditure to, to 15%. Money. Yeah, it's, mon money. It, it's really resourcing, it's money, and it's training. Right now, um, there are counties in the U.S. without a single psychiatrist. There are triage solutions in which family nurse practitioners are prescribing psychiatric medications. Um, there are situational, you know, you have one psychiatrist per 5,000 people. Um, there's just not enough well-trained providers to support the needs of a population when, at this point in time, 40% of Americans have claimed a, you know, a mental health emergency in the past two years. And when I say, sorry, mental, would claim having some sort of mental health dysregulation. Need to be specific there. You know, and, uh, and so we're in, a, we're in a crisis parallel pandemic situation. And the challenge is, I think a lot of people I've spoken with are under the assumption, oh, but there'll be some reversion to some pre-pandemic mean. The data is not revealing that. We're actually maintaining where we were during the middle of the pandemic in terms of emergencies and mental health dysregulation. And so really what that comes down to, there, there might be some factors to that and that people might be more open and talking about things due to stigma reduction, things like that, but we need more people we need more services, we need more resources deployed to support the great needs of the population. And I could go on and on, but. I know, there. there's a lot of stuff that's broken that needs to be fixed. Okay, we have about five minutes left. I would love to take a couple questions from the audience, if anyone has. Alexa, I'll bring you a mic. Uh, I wondered if you had any best practices for taking care of your guests, any things that we ought to keep in mind? Yeah, I mean, we always end every interview with what are you gonna do next, you know? We, we tell people before the interview if we think it's gonna be particularly taxing, you might wanna clear your schedule for the day, um, give yourself some time to recover. Um, I think, you know, for me personally, I always start with telling guests what the show is about, that I've experienced telling my story my painful story as well, that we're going to take really good care of their story, um, that, you know, it's going to be chopped up and edited and feel free to start over and, you know, rephrase things and just really making them feel comfortable um, before we dive in. And my producers always joke, like, I, when I'm interviewing somebody, we, we become best friends. That's my primary interview tactic. I don't care who it is. Uh, we're going to talk about potato chips before we talk about anything else. And we're going to finish talking about something very fun as well. So it, it has to, you have to balance the heavy with the light. And then, like, take care. I go for walks. I spend time with my children. I try to shut down on the weekends. Like, there are things that therapy, therapy is so great. Um, all of those things that we need to be doing anyway, I do, my team does, and then of course having a great team 
we tell a very depressing stories, but we, uh, we love each other and we laugh constantly. It's very important. Um, I'm just quickly going to say mental hygiene is something I want to spread more awareness around. I'd like to spread more awareness around. That involves people understanding that mental health support is a daily occurrence. It needs to be a daily uh, occurrence, and that involves fitness, nutrition, mindfulness, meditation, potentially therapy, community support, self-improvement, breath work, combined into whatever customized solution-oriented rituals work for you. It can be transformational for people. Can you hear me? Okay, now I'm on. Um, I have the Married Entrepreneurs podcast, and uh, I do it with my husband. We are marriage counselors. And so my question is from a mental health um, provider perspective. What would you like to see more from us, especially around the podcast world, um, and how we can be advocates and um, be on the front line of the crisis that we, we see in our office and um, we're dealing with on a daily basis, but what would you like to see more from us? There's, there's, there's niche is important right now. People have very specific needs. So I, I, I don't know your show, you may do this already, but like going really deep on an issue that you know many people are probably struggling with that nobody's really talking about, whether it's specific stuff around sex or how you make decisions in a relationship, but the more detailed you get, the more people are gonna come alive to like hear themselves mirrored back. Um, so that's, anytime someone says niche, I'm like, good, that's a good word. That's a good word. Um, I'm married to my co-founder, so like the, like the topic. Um, it's, it's, interesting. it's a journey and I love it. Um, I'm gonna say a very specific consideration, something I've learned in speaking to cl clinicians. Uh, and, and that relates to supporting openness and learning about adjacencies to a specific craft. For instance, um, a lot of psych psychiatrists aren't trained around lifestyle interventions as a solution. Integrated care, they're oriented towards point care solutions, so prescribing mood stabilizers versus, say, hey, understanding lifestyle changes as an adjunct or the like. So, what I found is that the more training somebody has, the more years of schooling, the less openness they have in many situations. That's not the case for every practitioner. But, but so I would say developing opportunities to catalyze openness amongst clinicians would be an, an enormous opportunity that, that could be applied. I think we are out of time. Thank you all for coming. I know this is some heavy stuff. That's kind of what we do every day is the heavy stuff. But we appreciate you being here. And thank you so much.